are listening to the Good Shepherd Bible Church Sermon Podcast. Our mission at Good Shepherd is to proclaim the gospel so that all people will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. One of the main ways we believe that we are accomplishing our mission is through the proclaimed word. We believe that the preached word creates and sustains the church. Our desire is to preach Christ crucified for you, which means we hope that Jesus is the substance and hero of every sermon and that Jesus is preached into the places of sin and brokenness into our hearts. We thank you for joining us and hope that you will believe, grow, and hope in Jesus. In a sermon series we've entitled No Other Gospel, working through Paul's letter to the Galatians. Paul is laying out a clarity of several things, uh, really just actually a couple things. He's laying out a clarity of the nature of the gospel, what the good news of Jesus Christ is. And he's also giving a summary defense of his own apostleship. And this continues in the first two chapters and then begins to crystallize uh, in an argument related to how the gospel works specifically. So we're just beginning chapter 2 where Paul is, it's kind of part 2 of a sermon uh, that we started last week. Uh, Last week we looked at this idea of uh, the apostolic gospel. Um, Last week we looked at the apostolic gospel just by itself, talking about uh, Paul understanding what he had personally. Apart from approval, he did not need God's approval. He already had it. He didn't need to earn God's approval. He didn't need to earn man's approval. He had already received that from Jesus Christ. The grace and the peace that God had given him in Christ had given him all the approval that he needed all by himself. And so it gave him a kind of freedom to be able to speak with liberty and to go to uh, the places that God had called him to go on mission. Tonight we're going to kind of turn uh, the apostolic gospel by itself. Now we're going to start to get it into the life of the church. Paul's going to bring his apostolic gospel and kind of test it uh, with the, the church at large that was growing. Uh, we saw this, the growth of the church in uh, the book of Acts as we preach through it. Uh, we're going to get a little scene of that happening here in Galatians 2. There's something that happens to... Every believer, when they start getting introduced to the realities of God's grace in the gospel, we slowly start to drift from the sweet good news of it is finished, and the law tends to creep into the message. This is why Paul was a little upset, and by a little I mean a lot upset, with the Galatian church. He was so miffed that they could so easily and so quickly move away from him who called them into grace. Grace got them into salvation, but once they were in, they started to take their own reins of their salvation process and begin to hijack their own sanctification by their own effort. And Paul was angry that Judaizers had come in and started adding works to the gospel, and by adding works to the gospel, he w- they were actually uh, subtracting the goodness and the sweetness of God's grace from it. This week, I had several opportunities to, t- to, to work through this uh, law creep, this law creep into the gospel in my own life. 
and in several aspects of my personal life and my family life and in my ministry life, I kind of came to grips this week. The reason I think I let the law creep into the sufficiency of the gospel is because I, I really do think grace at the end of the day is really scary. It's really scary to trust in Jesus and Jesus alone. It puts me in an uncomfortable position when I have to trust wholly in the work of somebody else. I have to give up my own ability and to trust in the ability of somebody else. That is a truly scary place. This happened in a very clear sense uh, this week um, when I was working through a particular issue with one of my kids. It was a parenting issue. And I realized at some point I am not in control and I have to trust God to change a heart. It's not up to me. I don't get to choose if my kids believe, when they believe, how much they believe. It's not up to me. And if I'm going to point them to the realities of the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for them, I can't trust in my own efforts. I can't trust in my own ability. I can't lean on my tactics. I can't lean on my own performance as a parent. I have to trust, and that is hard. I talked about this yesterday in an elder training at Calvary Bible Church, how as pastors, we are merely stewards of the grace of God. We communicate God's grace. We preach God's grace, but we are not in control of God's grace in a way that would actually allow us to be able to pick and choose how the grace of God affects hearts in particular ways. We are mere just relay men. We are just middlemen. And in that way, at some point, we have to put our heads on the pillow and just say, I've done my job just by delivering the grace of Jesus, but the fruits of all that are not up to me. So whether or not there are people in our churches as pastors who walk away from the Lord or who give themselves to sin, I have no control over that. I have no ability to pick and choose who responds well and who doesn't respond well, as if I would want that responsibility anyway. There are a lot of times functionally I believe that I do want that responsibility. This is what I mean when I say that grace alone is actually really scary. I think this is the same fear that the Galatian church was wrestling with. They started out by grace, but they started to get scared. Judaizers came in and started telling them, yes, Jesus, but you also have to have circumcision or else you're not good enough. And we get scared. And the reality is lawful salvation actually gives us some level of manageability. And it's like a, it's like a comfort blanket. It's like a, it's like a binky. We just got to have it and it offers us some level of comfort. Yes, Jesus, I will trust in Jesus, but please just give me this a little bit of like award for my Bible reading this week and I'll feel really good about myself. It's some comfort. And we might be willing to recognize I don't need every comfort. I do need Jesus to do a lot of the heavy lifting, but there's got to be some light lifting I can add. And the law just creeps into the reality of our gospel. Paul was dead set on helping the Galatian church to realize 
that our only hope is in a pure gospel. Our only hope is in a pure gospel. I read a couple weeks ago this idea, and it stuck with me as I was going through parenting and pastoral issues this week. Nothing can take away sin except the grace of God. But in actual living, however, it is not so easy to persuade oneself that by grace alone, in opposition to every other means, we obtain forgiveness of our sins and peace with God. This was Luther in his commentary to the Galatians. In actual living, however, I believe in grace alone in my heart, but in actual living, I actually want a little bit of comfort of my own performance. Oh, how easy it is. So tonight we're going to walk through, again, this is Paul defending his gospel, uh, but it's so much more than that. So tonight I want to look at uh, the apostolic gospel in the realm of the church and the capital C church, the church at large in Paul's day. Again, last time we looked at the apostolic uh, gospel just by itself, what it did for Paul and Paul alone. Now we're going to test it up uh, to the realities of the global church that was growing at the time. So read with me, if you will, Galatians 2, and we'll go through verses 1 through 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, taking Titus along with me. I went up because of a revelation set before them, though privately before those who seemed influential, the gospel that I proclaimed among the Gentiles, in order to make sure I was not running or had not run in vain. But even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Yet because of false brothers secretly brought in, who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that they might bring us into slavery, to them we did not yield in submission even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. And from those who seem to be influential, what they were makes no difference to me. God shows no partiality. Those, I say, who seemed influential added nothing to me. On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the circumcised worked also through me for my, uh, for my ministry to the Gentiles. And when James and Peter and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that was given to me, they gave the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. Only they asked us to remember the poor, the very thing I was eager to do. Again, Paul's in a running flow of defending his ministry. Last week, we looked at the idea that Paul knew what he had. He knew what he had in the gospel, and therefore he wasn't using the law to try to gain approval with God or gain approval with the other apostles. He sat still. He went MIA. It allowed him to minister in obscurity in a very beautiful and freeing way. And so he ministered the gospel. I think he actually did a little bit of Gentile ministry in that kind of obscure moment there because what at that point would keep Paul from preaching the gospel And he goes and preaches around, and he did it by himself, needed no further attestation from the rest of the apostles. Paul knew what he had. But at some point, yes, he'd have to come into the life of the capital C church and begin to make sure that his gospel was the pure gospel, and that other people understood when they finally got around to hearing that this one who persecuted the church now is the greatest champion of the life of the church, they needed to make sure that it was going to be okay. 
So Paul begins to interact with the other apostles and other pastors in the churches of Jerusalem. He begins to kind of check his gospel with the rest of the apostolic doctrine to make sure it's all going to be okay. And so Paul wants to ensure that his gospel is pure. So he's going after this kind of purity of the gospel. Again, both in a summary kind of defense. He wants to make sure that he has a defensible gospel, that it can actually stand the test of apostolic ministry and scripture, truthfulness of it. But also, as we'll see here in a little bit, this is for pastoral reasons as well. He wants to make sure the gospel is pure so that it does the job of actually saving real sinners in real time. I mentioned that Paul was defending his ministry. That's a little bit of a weird phrase. Paul wasn't defending it from a sense of like weird self-justification. Again, he needed no one else's approval. This wasn't ultimately about Paul. Paul recognized this beautifully. God had saved Paul. Paul knew the mission God had called him to. And I think he had some awareness of how impactful God was going to use him to be in the life of the mission of the church. He had this great sense of gravity towards how God was going to use him, the kind of call he possessed. But Paul didn't make it all about himself. It wasn't all about Paul. Again, he went MIA for a little bit. Now it came time to test his gospel with the other apostles. And he goes right up to those who seemed to be influential. I love that phrase. He walked up to the bosses of the church at this moment. Right up to the heavy lifters. To those who had the book publishing records and those who had the podcasts. And he went right up to the biggest churches of Jerusalem. These guys who seemed to be influential. Paul walked right up to them and said... Let me tell you about a story about how I was walking on a road and Jesus saved me. I just want to make sure I'm preaching the same thing. So he goes to them privately and begins to talk with them. And sure enough, it seems like he's proclaiming the same kind of gospel and begins to defend his ministry. But notice, again, this gospel defense wasn't for his sake. He wasn't trying to prove himself or prove anything about himself Look Look what actually this was for. Gospel purity is necessary both for you and for others. And what I mean by that is it's not for the sake of like your vocational ministry and ministries that God gives you. In other words, God gives you this understanding of the purity of the gospel for the sake of your own soul, for your soul. Paul knew that this was necessary for his own soul. We see this in verse 3. Even Titus, who was with me, was not forced to be circumcised, though he was a Greek. Titus was a Greek in the middle of the Jerusalem church, uncircumcised. To the Jew would have been seen as an outsider. No access to the promises of God, to the things of God. And yet the church was looking at him and squaring it up with Paul's gospel. And there was no need at that moment for further circumcision. At that point, they understood the gospel to be complete, to be sufficient for Titus's soul, and Paul was happy with that. It's beautiful. Paul understood the purity of the gospel for his own soul. We don't need to add anything to our souls. We don't need to burden our souls. We don't need to look at Timothy and, and say, Timothy, you got to add one more thing, man. You've done everything else. We got to add one more thing. We need to add one more thing to Timothy's to-do list, spiritually speaking. Paul was intent on defending the purity of his gospel for the sake of his soul, for the sake of Timothy's soul. But also in verse 
4 and 5. I love this. They wanted to, these other brothers who snuck in, these other brothers who were in Jerusalem, maybe not as influential, but maybe they just had these legalistic tendencies that they were creeping in the law to the gospel. Paul said these brothers snuck in to sniff out our freedom and they were trying to bring us back into slavery. And I wasn't going to have any of that. I wasn't going to have any of that law creep into the purity of the gospel. Why? Verses, uh, look at the end of verse 5. To them we did not yield in submission even for a moment so that the truth of the gospel might be preserved for you. Paul speaking to the Galatian church. There was our soul at stake. I didn't want Timothy unsettled by asking him to be circumcised. I didn't think that would be appropriate given the sufficiency of the gospel. But we also didn't just do that for us, for Timothy and I. We did it so that the gospel would be preserved for you. There was this kind of missional clarity to their freedom. It's not just about us and our freedom. This freedom is exercised so that when we speak the gospel, that it rings like freedom in your ears too. We wanted you to understand the purity of the gospel. We didn't want you to feel burdened by something else, by what we were doing. This is why Paul was so passionate about the gospel purity, even as he was training other leaders in the church. Remember what he said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 1? He says, guard the good deposit. Guard it. Again, chapter 1 of Galatians, there are people in the church who want to unsettle you and distort the gospel of Jesus. Paul looks at Timothy and says, guard the good deposit. Bind it up. Put it in a lock and key. Don't let anyone mess with it. But also at some point, don't just harbor it and don't just lock it in. At some point, you've got to let it go. And later on in chapter 2, he says, The things that you have heard from me among many other witnesses, and trust the faithful men who will be able to teach others also. You've got to be able to guard it, but in guarding it, you've got to be able to send it forward. And that's a tricky thing. It's got to be pure in how you receive it and guard it and keep it, but it's got to be pure in how you give it out too. So you have to teach other faithful men that they have to guard the purity of the gospel too. And then they've got to be able to guard it, and then they've got to be able to send it out. And it's got to keep going and keep going. And throughout church history, it's important. Again, I mentioned this in the first uh, week of our, of our series. But it's amazing to me how we have to keep visiting this book of Galatians and how law creep continues throughout every generation of the life of the church. We saw it in Jesus' day. We see it in Paul's day. We saw it in Luther's day. And we see it in our day clearly. How the law just continues to creep And so, church, we have to be careful about guarding the purity of the gospel. Why? For our sake, for our own souls, but also for the sake of our mission, who we're trying to reach. For the people who don't have clarity on the gospel outside of our walls, who are bound to performanceism and legalism outside of our church. It's important that our gospel remains pure for them, too. See, again, Paul didn't make this about himself and his own apostolic ministry. Paul was trying to protect the purity of the gospel so that the good newsiness of the gospel would be preserved. So that when he preached good news, it actually sounded like good news to people. It didn't sound like good news with a little bit of like, well, I don't know if I'm that. Or I don't know if Jesus can accept me because I haven't done that. Or I don't know if I'm good enough in that category. That literally when it sounded like grace, unconditional acceptance, demerited favor, 
that it would actually be amazing grace to people. The purity of the gospel is to protect, protect the good newsiness of it. It's funny, I, I, it, is, it is a little tricky because Paul does sound mad when he's trying to communicate these things. This is, a, this is kind of a, a hot text here. It's a, it's a heated exchange that he is giving to the Galatian church, but in being kind of upset, he's actually trying to highlight the sweetness and the goodness and the grace of God. He's mad because people are losing their happiness in Jesus. He's upset because people aren't experiencing the reality of freedom. It's kind of this interesting juxtaposition. And the reality is his gospel ended up checking out with the church, with the Jerusalem church. He starts to get in with the apostles. But look, look what he says about those who were influential in verse 6. And those who seem to be influential, what they are makes no difference to me. Again, I don't need anybody's approval, and God shows no partiality. Those I say who seemed influential, they added nothing to me. They heard our gospel, and they themselves didn't add anything to what I was already preaching. They themselves, the church there, they were protecting the gospel. They were guarding the good deposit that was handed to them. And they added nothing to Paul. Any more burdens, they, they didn't lay on Paul. In other words, to Paul, what he was receiving from the church, that sounded like good news. And Paul was like, cool. Because when I saw Jesus on the road to Damascus, the experience that I had was pure, pure grace. Just wanted to make sure we were all checked out. It is interesting because there's a huge amount of significance in this moment where Timothy himself, as a Greek, walks into the church of Jerusalem and immediately finds acceptance. That's kind of, it's kind of hard for us to picture just because like, I think we've, we've lost a little bit of that contention here in the, in the Western church. But because I understand that like, Jews and Greeks, they just, didn't, they just didn't work together in a church setting. They just, they just didn't collide together in a religious aspect. And so for the first time, Timothy being able to like be present and be accepted and be in the circle of conversation and for them to not add any other burdens, it was this absolutely defining moment for the life of the church. Remember how Peter had such a hard time uh, when God gave him the vision of the sheet and all the animals and he kind of had this little fight with God about like, God, I've, I've never called anything unclean clean before. I've been righteous this whole time. And God's like, no, you can eat that stuff. God was breaking down walls or barriers of performance and ways of religion. Because the reality is, it's not that God is doing away with those things, but Jesus had actually filled them up. That's why it's so significant that Paul would point out this reality that our circumcision has been made without hands. It's been a circumcision by the Spirit of God in our hearts. So from that aspect, the purity of the gospel, Paul and Timothy had already been circumcised inwardly, though they, at least Timothy wasn't uh, circumcised outwardly. And that's what allowed the acceptance to happen. It's a significant moment in the life of the church. Christ had fulfilled all of the law and the prophets. He came not only to render his obedience to the law, but he also came to fulfill the shadows of the ceremonial law, which ultimately pointed to Jesus. This is why Paul had no problem with Titus's uncircumcised state. Moreover, this is why Paul says that he did not yield in submission to the false teachers on this matter, even for a moment, so that the truth of the gospel would be preserved. Can you imagine that scene? There's influencers in the church who are trying to get Paul to circumcise Timothy. 
And Paul's looking at them square in the face and is like, I'm not doing that. I'm not doing that. I wonder, I wonder if we have that kind of boldness with one another. Enough freedom in Jesus to not allow our hearts to be burdened by anything lawful, anything performance-based, so that we could just cling on to the good newsiness of Jesus. Just cling on to the graciousness of Jesus. Allow the gospel to be the 200-proof gospel that it really is. I wonder if you would have that kind of courage to say no to religiosity so that you might just simply lean on the sufficiency and the rest that Jesus offers. I wonder if you would have that kind of courage. And again, like I said at the beginning, that is scary, isn't it? As a person who's been raised in the church and has been taught the significance of all these religious practices, these things that we think might, I mean, again, I'm not going to say that these things get us into the faith, but I do think these things at least in my mind, tend to keep me in the faith, right? Would I be willing to give up religious practices just so that my heart can trust in the good newsiness of Jesus? I wonder if you would have that kind of courage to do that this week. Probably never heard that from a pastor before in your life. (laughs) I remember the first time going through seminary and just reeling from the realities of if God's grace is purely 100% grace, then there's nothing I have to do today. Just reeling from that concept. I remember my wife and I having conversations about like, I wonder if you could give up Bible reading just so that every day you would just simply trust the sufficiency of Jesus' sacrifice for you. Could you do it? And as a religious person, that is so scary, isn't it? What if my daily habit was allowing Jesus to be enough for me? Again, hear what I'm saying. Bible reading is wonderful. Because in the Bible, you understand God's grace to you in Jesus. Okay? But I think a lot of times, my Bible reading got in the way of the sufficiency of Jesus. Bible reading was a burden on my soul. It was the circumcision to Timothy. It was the Jesus plus my Bible reading equals freedom. It's what... Jesus actually says in, in John 5, he actually criticizes the Pharisees for reading their Bible too much. He says, you look to the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it's they that testify of me. If you would put your Bible down for two seconds and look at me square in the face, you would see your eternal sufficiency. Don't miss me. Certainly, read your Bible. <laughs> Wonderful. I encourage you to read your Bible. But go to your Bible to read about Jesus' sufficiency, not yours. Go to the Bible to hear about the good newsiness of Jesus' finished work, not your ability to keep the law for him. Go to the, go, go to the Bible to hear Jesus' it is finished, not so that you would just take up the arms of just do it. Hear his finished work for you. Paul was very concerned about the purity of the gospel. Again, it was purity for the gospel for him but it was also had this missional effect too, so that when the gospel was preached, it actually heard like good news in the hearts of real sinners. And again, this message was going to wreck the world. Timothy was like the, the, the first prototype of this, this uncircumcised Greek walking into the Jewish church. Crazy little prototype of uh, the chaos that would ensue. Church problems ever since. <laughs> Got bad people coming into church ever since, right? Praise God, because we're here, right? Wonderful. And so he begins to explain the acceptance of Paul's gospel. The church in Jerusalem began to accept his gospel and say, yep, 
Timothy doesn't need to be circumcised. It is good news. It's 100% grace. Nothing that you add to God's work for you. It's pure, 100% grace. You don't need to be circumcised. Nothing added. And all of a sudden, this started to gain acceptance in the Jerusalem church, but also with the rest of the apostles. Verse 7, On the contrary, when they saw that I had been entrusted with the gospel to the uncircumcised, that is to the to Gentiles, just as Peter had been entrusted with the gospel to the circumcised, for he who worked through Peter for his apostolic ministry to the Jews worked also through me for my ministry to the Gentiles. And then James and Peter and John, they come along. These are pillars of the church, and they perceive that the same grace was with me, that it was in them. They gave to me the right hand of fellowship to Barnabas and me, that we should go to the Gentiles. They had separate missions. They had different scopes of their missions, but it was the same message that they were proclaiming. Now, again, we're going to see a little bit of law creep get into the life of Peter. Peter's going to forget like we all do. Peter's going to get scared like we all do. Peter's going to forget to eat with bad people like we all do. Paul's going to have to correct that and go after the gospel purity there. But the reality is, at least in theology, at least in the lineup, they're able to shake hands. Paul would later on uh, kind of act this way to the Philippian church. and says, I'm so encouraged by your partnership in the ministry. They had the same kind of partnership as apostles. and said, we're together. We're on the same team. And there, therefore, Paul's gospel was accepted. But we also begin to see the scope of Paul's gospel. Again, no longer was it just this Jewish crowd that was accepted. Those who went to church and dressed up right and did all the right things and crossed their T's and dotted their I's perfectly. Those who had never heard of the name of Jesus would get into the life of the church. Those who had never once approached a temple. Those who had never once offered a sacrifice. Those who had never once heard of the name of Yahweh are now able to come. And Paul was intent to reaching all kinds of people with the gospel. Yes, James, Peter, and John were going to the uh, Jews, but Paul knew that his ministry, God had called him to go to places that were completely irreligious where the scandal of God's grace, the scariness of God's grace would wreak havoc among just normal, everyday, common sinners, people who have never once taken a step towards God. God was coming to them in the graciousness of the gospel. I do find it funny that, may, and I, don't, I don't know if this is a little bit of law creep even here, I, I, don't, I don't think so, uh, but the, the law certainly would say, hey, make sure you care for the poor, don't forget about them. And Paul was like, yeah, they were like first on my mind. They were like, yeah, number one, like Gentiles were poor people. So that's like number one. We got that. That was like my first mission. I was going to go to them. And I love how James and, and, and Peter were like, hey, just uh, make sure, don't forget, go to the poor people. That's in our rule book. We got to go to the poor people. <laughs> like, All right, okay. All right. Paul's like, I was already going to do that. But it shows you the scope. Paul had set his horizons not on good people getting better. Paul had set his horizons on completely dead people receiving eternal life. This is why the purity of the gospel is so important. Because it has nothing to do with religion. It has nothing to do with ways that we judge acceptability. It has nothing to do with what's going on on the outside and what's on the inside. Again, later on, Paul's going to say circumcision or uncircumcision. None of that stuff matters. What you do, what you don't do, none of that stuff matters. The only thing that matters is faith in Christ that simply expresses itself in free love. 
The only thing that matters is trusting in the sufficiency of Jesus, which I know is scary because that means you actually have to like distrust your performance, discount your performance, put aside your performance. And that hurts the pride a little bit. But it preserves the good newsiness of the gospel. It shows you the scope of what God intends for us, church. The purity of the gospel is not just that we can pat ourselves on the back and say, we've got good doctrine here. The purity of the gospel is that when we put our heads on the pillow at night, knowing we spent the whole day thinking about ourselves, not moving in love towards our neighbor, we can still rest and trust in the forgiveness of Jesus and wake up again in God's grace and forgiveness and do it again. Try again. We can set our own souls free from the burden of performancism, that somehow Jesus loves you on the basis of what you do and rather on the basis of what he's done for you. It's for our souls, but it's also for the souls of people that God has called us to reach, of which there are millions around in our city. Thousands, probably not millions, but in our city, thousands. A lot of people are in our city that need this kind of freedom, that are burdened down by the burden of performancism, that think either one, they're lying to themselves, thinking my good performance is getting me acceptability with God, or my lack of performance is keeping me from God. My friends, Paul's saying the purity of the gospel lays us all low. Whether Jew or Gentile doesn't matter. God's intending to reach sinners with his pure grace. And my gospel checks out. I wonder if this would be a moment where maybe in the life of the Jerusalem church, and as we're, again, we're going to continue to see everybody kind of has to continue to reset the dial, to recalibrate our thermometers on the purity of the gospel of grace, on the heat of the gospel of grace. Get back to 100% Jesus. All of us have to keep doing that over and over and over again. I wonder if tonight is another night where you need to do that for your own soul. Get back to the purity of the gospel for your soul. See the table set before you, not as something you have to come do, not as something you get to exchange, or not something you've earned tonight, but something that just actually helps you understand the freeness of God's grace for your own soul, the forgiveness that you have. But I also wonder if it would help you even at home. I know for me, confront, getting confronted with this passage, even with this understanding of uh, this parental issue that I was dealing with and the pastoral issues I was, I was dealing with, settled my soul allowed me to experience the peace of God which surpasses understanding. That whether or not my child continues to go his own way or do his own thing, my soul is well. That God is sovereign enough to handle his soul with grace. That if it's no performance-based salvation for me, then it's no salvation-based performance for him. And God can save him beautiful. Actually works the peace in my heart. I wonder if that would be for you tonight. Let's pray. God, we thank you for the purity of the gospel, that it really is based on your grace and your grace alone.
Once for all.